Thank you so much for joining us for today's podcast. We'll get started in just a moment. If this is your first time here, please consider subscribing so that you may stay up to date with the latest podcast. And if our podcast brings value to your life, please consider sharing it with family and friends. Thanks for listening. And now here's today's podcast. Thanks for joining us for the Covenant Living Broadcast with Pastor John Butler of Covenant Life Church, located at 130 Atlantic Avenue in Bremen, Georgia. All right, so if you want to get your Bibles ready, we're going all the way back to the beginning. All the way back. We're going to Genesis, not all the way back, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, we're going to be in verses 8 and 9. And I'll give you some context in a moment, but this is what we're talking about today. It says in verse 8, starting in verse 8 in chapter 3, When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife, that's Adam and Eve, heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. And in verse 9 it says, Then the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? Where are you? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time that we have together. God, we thank you for your word that is still alive and true. God, we pray that you anoint this time that we have together, that you use me and speak through me to your people, that you lead us into deeper relationship with you as a result of this time that we have together this morning. We thank you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so to understand the scripture that we just read, and I'm sure, you know, this is like day one Sunday school Bible study kind of thing, but I want to give you some context. And so we jumped into chapter three and verse eight, and what has happened just before this is that Satan has deceived Adam and Eve into eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And because of this sin, they're now ashamed and they have hidden from God. And so God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day, which is said that he did with Adam. And he sees that something is amiss and he asks this very simple question. Three words, where are you? Where are you? And so what I want to do is analyze this question today. But before we jump into how this applies to our lives, thousands of years removed from the creation story, I first want to point out three reasons why we're even talking about it. Why, Jordan, would you even bring up three words, a random throwaway question here in chapter three of Genesis? Well, I want to show you three quick things, and then we'll dive into the meat of it. The first is I want you to consider what's being said. What's being said? Now, I looked up this passage in in preparing for today's message. I looked up this passage on Bible Hub, which if you know anything about Bible Hub, it's like a parallel Bible on steroids, right? A parallel Bible historically is you can look at two versions of a Bible side by side. You can see the changes, the nuance, the context, any sort of notes and, and footnotes that they want to give you there. And so on Bible Hub, it's like an endless list. Every version, every translation, you could go for days. And that's what I did. I went through the whole list on Bible Hub, and would you believe me if I told you that every single version contained this question? It is not changed in any version, not even the message. The message has historically been viewed as a thought-for-thought thought instead of a verse-for-verse verse Bible, and they don't even change the question. Some of them will add the man or Adam. Some versions, I'll let you guess which ones, say, where art thou, instead of where are you, but every single version has this verse which illuminates to me that it's probably pretty important, that it hasn't been changed across the whole of Scripture for all of, all of history, okay? Second thing is I want you to consider when it's being said. 
All right, the Bible, I'm giving you like a lot of background knowledge, and then we're going to get in. The Bible's broken up into sections. Those sections are called pericopes. Those pericopes typically have a heading that lets you know what that passage of Scripture is about. And if you were to look in your Bible or my Bible or any other Bible, you'd probably see that the heading for this passage of Scripture is the temptation and the fall of man, or simply the fall of man. This, what we've just read, is the original sin. This put into, every, put into motion every sin that we've ever felt, experienced, committed ourselves. It put into fact the the banishment from humanity from the garden in perfect relationship with God. It's the reason for, yes, painful childbirth, the reason that we have to work, and the reason that Jesus had to come to earth in the first place, okay? And what is the first thing that God says after the fall of man? Where are you? He could have given condemnation. He could have convicted them, He could have said, I know you're hiding, come on out. But instead, he chooses to ask a very specific question. Where are you? Again, I think that's pretty significant and worthy of our attention. It got my little feelers going and saying, okay, I need to pay attention here. The third thing is I want you to consider why it's being said. Consider why it's being said. Because this verse, verse 9, is exhibit A for anyone who wants to point out contradictions in the Bible. They will list verse 9 in Genesis chapter 3 as a reason that they say, hey, the Bible can't be trusted. Why? Because if God is omniscient, if he's all-knowing, why does he have to ask Adam where he is? That's what they'll say. They'll say God should never have to ask Adam where he is. And so I'm here to tell you today that this is what's known as a rhetorical question. All right? In fact, it's one of many in the Bible. Uh, Romans 6, 1, I think it is, uh, Paul's writing to the Roman church, and he says, well, should we just go on sinning and see how far we can exploit the grace of God? It's a rhetorical question, right? God is God. Nothing is foreign to him. He has just created this man and this woman and placed them in the garden that he also created in the world that, guess what, he also created. He doesn't need to know his physical location, but what he's asking is, where are you in relation to me? Much like any rhetorical question, perhaps you're a parent, I've done these, uh, maybe you say, uh, why isn't your room clean? Or this one, did something happen at school today that you'd like to tell me about? We as the parent, God as the parent in this scenario, already know the answer. He already knows. But what he hopes to do is encourage reflection, introspection, and get the person to adopt an attitude of humility and accountability. That's what he's hoping to do here. He's opening the door for conversation to allow Adam to make amends in the relationship. So he's saying, what's changed? Because I'll guarantee you, Adam knew the second that he asked this question, something's not right here. Because here's the thing. If all was well in the relationship, Adam would have been walking side by side with God in the garden in the cool of the day. He would have never had to have asked, where are you in the first place? And so he's asking him this question to help him check his heart. This is what I tell my kids. I've, I've started taking to this, and forgive me, my mind is weird, but I've started telling my kids, check yourself before you wreck yourself. All right? Is, are the choices that you're making, the things that you're saying, the things that you're doing, are they getting you someplace good? Or are they going to get you in trouble? You know, I'm trying to teach them to, like, think three steps ahead. I know they're kids, they're eight and almost six, I get it, they're not going to get it right every time, but I'm trying just to encourage them, like, think about what's going to happen, there's consequences to our actions, and this is what God's doing, check yourself before you wreck yourself, unfortunately, Adam's already wrecked himself, and set into motion all the events of human history, but this is still an opportunity for a heart check, 
It's still an opportunity for a relation check. And so that's the question that we're analyzing today is where are you? Where are you today in relation to God and where are you headed? Because we need to check ourselves before we wreck ourselves. We need to search our heart. The Bible talks a lot about searching our heart. Search me and know me, O God. Search my ways and reveal if there's anything in me that doesn't align with you, that doesn't please you, right? And so it's important for us. And when it comes to finding our direction, when it comes to answering this question of where are you in the physical, it helps to have landmarks. It helps to have a bird's eye view to know the ramps and the roads that lie before us and the different options that we can take. And it's like that in life. There's a lot of different ways we can go. There's a lot of different things that we can do. God gave us free will. And so what I've done is I've saved you all a trip to the museum, and I've procured an artifact from the not-so-distant past. And I'm going to share it with you today because when we're trying to navigate ourselves in the physical world, we need a map. Yes, a map. Not a phone. Not a GPS. There was a precursor for that. Your little save button in your word processor, that's a floppy disk. Some of you don't know what that is. And so what I've done is I have purchased this. That's right. It's a road atlas. This is the GPS of 2021, which is weird, right? Like, why do they still make these? Can we just address that right quick? Like, why is this still a thing? Sometimes you need it, yeah. And so, man, there's all sorts of maps in here. I'm going to try and do this one-handed. There's Missouri. I'll let you just get a glance at Missouri. There you go. Look at that. Zoomed-in maps. Far-away maps. There's three maps for the state of Georgia in here. Like, Georgia's not that big. Like, I get it if it was, like, Texas or California. There's three pages of maps for Georgia. I didn't look at Rhode Island. That'd be funny if they did, like, three pages for Rhode Island, like, really zoomed in. Uh, But this is how people get around. Right? I tried to find, Corey and I were joking, I tried to find like the Siri page, like where, what button do I press to try to get Siri to you know, fill me in, but no. So this is how we get around. And just like we use maps, whether virtual or physical, in the real world, we need a map to navigate us in the spiritual realm, right? Because I believe, and maybe you do too, that anything that applies in the physical has a spiritual component, right? If you look for God, you'll find him. And so much like we need a navigation device in the physical, we need a navigation device in the spiritual, and that's the Bible, right? Like we could stop there and be like, look, the Bible tells us where to go and what to do. It really does. Like I don't really need to be up here breaking this down. I think we all know that. I think that's, again, it's day one stuff. But what I want to do is help you to orient yourself because as we look in the Bible and we look at verses and we look at passages and we look at directions, I think that it's important to orient ourselves. And this morning, I'm going to break it down in three sets of opposite directions to help you answer the question of where you are personally, where you're going, and if we need to change course, okay? So the first question that I have for you is, are you moving toward or wayward? toward or wayward, all right? And so my first question as we unpack this, and I just want you to be honest, I want to create some degree of interaction, is do you ever drive somewhere and not realize how you got there? Does that happen? Show of hands, does that happen to anybody? Like it's some place that you drive all the time and your brain does this weird thing where it just goes on autopilot and you get to where you are and I hope you stop at all the stop signs along the way and then you put the car in park and you're like, what just happened? How did I get here? It's like, I don't know how that happens or why it happens, but it freaks me out every time it does. And if we're not careful, that happens in the spiritual realm every single day. 
you wake up one day and you realize that you're not where you intended to be. Right? In Casting Crowns, they had a song and it was called Slow Fade. I don't know if you ever heard this one, but it was this idea of like, it's a slow fade. For a lot of people, getting someplace off course, ending up where we don't want to be, it doesn't happen by, you know, intentional decisions. It's not like you wake up one day and be like, forget you, God, I'm going this way. No, it happens by small, minute, incremental steps away from God. And if we're not careful, that whole, I don't know how I got here thing can happen to us spiritually. And what I want to do is, is share with you the fact that that's been my reality spiritually for a little while. I mean, we have it in the lobby out there, real relational reaching. So what I want to do is be very real and very raw this morning and tell you that for the past couple of weeks, I've been doing okay. But for about the three to four weeks prior to that, I was in a very bad place. And I shared this with my small group, and we sort of unpacked it together. And I think God is allowing me to use it um, to minister, to teach. But I'll just be real with you. I have been really burnt out at work. And I know that's a buzzword, and I know I'm a millennial, so maybe you're already thinking, whatever, dude, you're not burnt out. You don't know what true work is. But I've been really frustrated. I've been really overwhelmed, okay? I've been feeling like I can't get caught up, that I'm out of control, that I, I don't have the autonomy that I need, that things just keep getting heaped and piled on top of me. And it has made me resent pretty much everything and everyone around me, if I'm being fully honest. You get to the place of frustration, and it's a vicious cycle whereby I'm so frustrated at work, and I feel like I can't catch up, that the only thing I can think to do is do more work. Like, that's messed up in the first place. But I'd find myself working late into the night. I'd find myself clocking in early, checking in. I'd always have my phone, emails, messages, anytime they'd ping. 10, 11 o'clock at night, boom, got to respond, got to be on it. I'd work through lunch, and it has made me a miserable person. Like, it has made my fuse shorter than it's ever been, and I've been ticked off, and the people around me haven't gotten my best. My wife and my kids have gotten just, like, I'd clock out from work, and the only thing I wanted to do, clock out, right? I'd clock out from work, and the only thing I wanted to do was watch TV or go to sleep. I wanted to turn my brain off. I don't want to see anyone. I don't want to talk to anyone, and the kids are like, Dad, can you play? Dad, can we? And I'm just like, I don't have time for it. And I'd snap, and I'd say stuff, and it's not right. And so I've been in this really bad place. Why? Because I took my eyes off of God. Because all that working and all that frustration and all that anger didn't leave a whole lot of time for God. This is what we talked about in my small group. We said this idea of like, you want to do what is going to gratify your own belief or your own feeling right then. Like when I'm angry, and maybe I'm alone in this, but hopefully I'm not, I want to listen to angry music. You know, like when I'm sad, like all the sappy love songs, right? Unrequited love. I want to play my high fidelity soundtrack and be sad. Right? And that's what, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. That's what Satan wants to do, lock you into that mentality. Well, hey, you're angry, but you're never going to catch up, so the only way you're going to catch up is to work more. And everyone else that's trying to get your attention, well, they're just a distraction. They're not there to enrich your lives. They're there to distract you from the thing you should be doing. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And if we're not careful, that's what we do. We go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into this trench, into this mindset, and maybe it's not work for you, but whatever it is that says you're not good enough, you're not trying hard enough, go harder, go faster, go stronger, and pretty soon we wake up one day and realize that we're not where we want to be. That God's way over there, and I thought, man, I thought I was close with God. And so for the past couple of weeks, I've been doing better, and I think that it's because I have analyzed this question. Because here's what has become abundantly clear in my life, and especially over the past several weeks, has been that your life is moving in a direction. Okay? Your life is moving in a direction. The choices that you're making, the things that you're doing and saying, are taking you someplace. The question is where? 
just like God asked Adam, where are you in relation to me? Because the reality is that for us as Christians, our decisions better be leading us to Christ. That's the path we should be walking, right? The straight and the narrow. It says it's the straight and the narrow for a reason. It says that those who find it are few. Why? Because there's so many other meandering paths that we can take. There's so many other things that vie for our attention. And so my question for you today is, what is your pursuit? Is it a toward pursuit or is it wayward? How does the Bible say that we should run our race? I'm going to throw a couple verses up at you, and I want you to consider these. Hebrews 12.2. This is what he says. Paul's writing, and he says, well, the author of Hebrews, presumed to be Paul, says, we do this. We run our race by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross. Look at that. Because of the joy awaiting him. Jesus had his eyes on his purpose. Likewise, we run our race by keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. He endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he's seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. We run our race, how? By keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. Psalm 16.8 says this. The psalmist writes, I will keep my eyes, or I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. By pursuing him, I'm keeping my eyes on the Lord. In fact, Jesus himself, it's not in my notes, but Jesus himself said, anyone who puts his hand to the plow and does what? Looks back, is not fit for service in the kingdom of God. It has to be a toward pursuit. It has to be fixated and focused. Why? Because where we focus our attention becomes our destination. Right? I'm going to break it down as simply. I tried to come up with a cool way of saying that, like Pastor John does, like a cool little rhyming thing I could put up. This is what I got. Ready? Where you look is where you go. Where you look is where you go. I remember riding with my dad. He was teaching me how to drive, and he would, like, stare off. I love you, Dad. He would stare off. Sometimes he'd get lost in his thoughts, and, like, we'd start to, like, start going off the road. And I was like, Dad, Dad, Dad. And I realized where you look is where you go, right? And so if we are not looking at God, if we're not fixing our eyes on Jesus, we're going in the direction of whatever we are fixing our eyes on. It's a reality. If you look at Jesus's life, Jesus's life was one of toward pursuit, okay? When you look at where he was born in Bethlehem to where he died in Jerusalem, it's a distance of five miles. And in the course of his three-year ministry, you could do this. You could go to Google or DuckDuckGo, whatever your search engine of choice is, and you could punch in Path of Jesus Ministry, and you too could find the map. It's not in the road atlas, I checked. Um, but what you can do is find the map, and you can see throughout the course of three years, he made numerous trips north and south. He went like this, pretty much up and down, up and down, up and down. He stayed in this general zone. So he would be in the region of Judea in the south, where Jerusalem was, and he would travel to the north, to the region of Galilee, uh, Mount Hermon beyond that, Capernaum, this area, Sea of Galilee. He would come back down, he'd get baptized, right, Jordan, Bethany across the Jordan, and he just went up and down, north and south, and that's all he did. And then when he was in the north and it was time for him to die, he did an about face and he went straight back to Jerusalem. In the moment where he could have said, deuces, I'm out, and went like way off the map, like a minor prophet we know by the name of Jonah, he turned, he did an about face, and he walked boldly to his purpose. And throughout the course of those three years and every trip that he took, he met needs as the Father led him. He spoke as the Father led him. What did he say? I only do what the Father tells me to do. He was in constant communion, and that constant communion and fixation of his eyes led to the course of his life, so that when he died, 
he was fulfilling his purpose, the ultimate fulfilling of his purpose. That was a toward pursuit. Now, I'm going to give you another example, and as I give you this other example, I want you to consider which one your life looks like. Think about the Israelites following their exodus from Egypt. You can also find this online, and it is kind of funny but also kind of sad to see the pursuit because it, it, it's winding, and it's circular, and it's all kinds of backwards and doubling back. They did this one thing where they're, like, going in the little Egyptian peninsula, and it's like this, like a little snake, like that game Snake used to play where you get super long, and you got to just double back on yourself. Well, that's what they were doing. Look, they, they're leaving Egypt, and they're saying, hey, let's go to the promised land, and instead of having a toward pursuit that says, okay, we're fixed of purpose, they take a circuitous winding path, a wayward pursuit. And so scholars believe, this was, this was eye-opening to me, scholars believe that the distance from Egypt to Canaan is 250 miles, that if it was a toward pursuit for them, it should have taken them 11 days. 11 days. In the biblical account, we say that by day four or five, they had already started complaining. So in theory, they should have been halfway there. They're not. We know this. And they're already complaining. In fact, they're saying how much better they had it in Egypt. Like, how messed up is that? And so they spend 40 years in a winding, circuitous pursuit. Why? Three reasons. And this is, where, this is the gut check. Ready? They were obstinate. What does that mean? Some versions say they were stiff-necked. They refused to change. They refused to change. God said, do this, change this way, be this people, and they wouldn't. They were disobedient. God said, go here, and they did it. God said, be faithful and take the land, and they said, no, we're scared, and they ended up going a different direction. They were forgetful, like four days forgetful. God leads them out, does all these miraculous signs and wonders, leads his people out of captivity, and they forget everything. They don't celebrate at all. It's not until years later that we start seeing this practice of placing rocks and placing uh, altars and memorial stones so that they could remember and have a physical representation of the things that God was doing in their lives. They were obstinate, disobedient, and forgetful people. Unless you think that this is, oh yeah, okay, you're comparing the Israelites to Jesus. It's a saved, unsaved, Christian, unchristian. No, these were God's people. Right? Like, we can't be there and be like, oh, they were the mean Egyptians doing a... No, it was God's people. It was the Israelites. Are we not God's people? Can we too not fall prey to a wayward pursuit? Can we too not be obstinate and disobedient and forgetful? So this is the gut check this morning is where are you? Where are you going? Because for me, for those past three weeks, I was not going in a toward pursuit. I was wandering in the desert and I was shaking my fist at God saying, how the heck did I end up here? And I was getting mad at him for something I did. And I was getting mad at everybody else for something I did. We've got to be focused and fixated on Christ. And that needs to be our only objective. What is it you want me to do? How is it you want me to live my life? We've got to have a toward pursuit. So which one applies to you? Which one describes you this morning? That's the first pair of opposite directions. The second pair of opposite directions is forward or backward. Forward or backward? Once we've answered this question and we're like, okay, we're on the toward track. We're not wandering in the desert anymore. We're living like Jesus. We're at least in the ballpark. We now have to determine if we're moving forward or if we're moving backward. And I'm going to drop a knowledge bomb on you today, which is this. Those are the only two options. Okay? Maybe you have been told in the past that you can put it in neutral and coast, but that is simply not true. 
There is no standing still with God. Okay? All the air just left the room. There's no standing still with God. You are either moving forward in your pursuit of him or you are moving backward. This is why the Why? How do I know this? Because the Bible has a lot to say about perseverance. If you could stand still with God, there would be nothing about perseverance in the Bible. And yet there are verse after verse. Verses like pressing onward toward what lies ahead. This is what I do. Yearning, striving. Pressing onward. Verses that say suffering leads to perseverance and perseverance to character. There is a striving within us. There is a desire to keep pressing onward. Yes, it's going to be hard work. I think that any uh, leaders in the faith, men and women of the faith that have been doing this thing for longer than I have, would raise their hand and say, it is hard work. Right? I've been saved for roughly 20 some odd years, and I can say it's been hard work in that time. Now think double and think triple and how you keep the faith and how you keep a mindset and how you keep a conviction and a commitment for that long. It is not easy. But we have to trust that God is going to renew our strength like the word says he will and continue to move forward. Again, my mind works a little silly. So my example for you this morning is this. It's like an escalator. What did I say a moment ago? Your life is moving in a direction. Even if your body is not physically moving, even if you are not moving your legs, look, on an escalator, you can kind of just chill, right? And you'll get to where you're going. Unless you're in D.C. I went to D.C., and in D.C., they are crazy. They don't stand still. In fact, we learned, my brother-in-law and I learned that if you want to stand still in an escalator, you have to stand to the right because on the left, they're just like booking it. They're just like zooming up, like super speed. And if you don't want to move, you've got to stand to the right. That's a fun fact. That one's free. If you ever use your road atlas to go to D.C., stay to the left if you want to go. Stay to the right. If you, but look, it's like an escalator. You are moving in a direction. Regardless of if you think you are or not, you're either moving forward and up or moving backward and down. Which direction are you going? We've got to keep moving. This is the important thing. Because if we are not striving, if we are not moving, if we are not generating motion in the direction of our pursuit, we're getting farther away. It's important for us. Again, I want to look to the Bible and I want to think practically here. How do we know that we're moving forward? What does that look like? Okay, Jordan, forward or backward, I'm on an escalator, you're creeping me out. What does it look like? And so what I want to do is I want to look again to the scripture, John 13, John 13, 35. Look at what this says. What is a forward pursuit? What does getting closer to God look like? Your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. Guess what? Those are the words of Jesus. That's what forward looks like. Growing in capacity for love for the people around me. If you're moving backward, your capacity for love will be diminished and there will be no discerning you from someone who's unsaved. This is how you'll know. That's the litmus test. That's the landmark on our map, okay? What does Matthew 7.20 say? Again, words of Jesus. Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. Your actions dictate a forward or backward pursuit. Jesus is answering, uh, responding to false prophets right here, and he very quickly zooms out and says, people, all people. This is true of everyone. Yes, it's true in the current context of false prophets, but I want you to know you can tell anyone by their fruit, by the work that they do, by their actions. What does a forward or backward pursuit look like? These things show you where you are. And if you're like me and you're a list maker, I like lists, I like checklists, I like knowing where I measure up, I like the yardstick. I have a yardstick for you, and it's in Galatians 5 passage of scripture that you may be familiar with, verses 19 through 23, right? Let's unpack it. Galatians 5, starting in verse 19. 
we'll look at what the flesh says and what the fruit of the Spirit are. And we're going to have to go old school, I think. Okay. Well, thankfully I have two Bibles here. I'm waiting to see if it pops up. Galatians 5. Thank you. It was just for show. I only made it to Zephaniah anyway. All right. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, what does it say? The results are very clear. What does a backward pursuit look like? What does it mean to be moving farther from God? The results are very clear. There's no mistaking them. Things like this, sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's the backward life. That's your litmus test, okay? And now we're going to look at the forward pursuit. What, how do we know if we're getting closer to God? Well, if you can tell a tree by its fruit, here are the things you look for. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There are no law against such things. That's it. That's forward or backward. Now, look, I want to make one quick clarifying statement. I told you a minute ago, it's not easy, right? There may be times when we slip up. There may be times when we miss the mark. Can we just be okay with that? But that's not what I'm talking about, and that's not what Paul's talking about either. Paul is talking about the conduct of your character, key parts of your decision-making process. So I have some sample questions for you today because we tend to think on a sliding scale. We tend to think, okay, it's, uh, well, I'm kind of doing better. I'm kind of leaning this way. I'm over here today, but I'm, you know, last week when I did that thing, I was over, no. Here's the reality. Look, a lot of theology, a lot of walking with God and his character is gray. There's a lot of gray. Why it says that we only see dimly on this side of eternity, but one day all things will be known, and I hope I have an audience to ask some questions because I want some black and white. That's how I live. Okay, so there's a lot of things this side of eternity that we may not know for certain. But what I do know for certain is that when you talk about obedience to God, all gray goes out the window. It is either black or white. It is either right or wrong. It is either you did what God told you to do or you didn't. Okay? And that's an uncomfortable truth. But it's a truth that we need to hear. Because there's no standing still with God. We're either moving forward or moving backward, and this is the litmus test that tells us how we're doing. And so I have some sample questions for you. Ready? This becomes the the 2021 Rand McNally Road Atlas of our faith, these passages in Galatians 5, because you can do this with pretty much any character trait. Ready? I want you to ask yourself this. Do I lean more toward outbursts of anger, or do I exude a lasting and pervasive joy? There's only two options, right? Which one is true of you? Are you moving forward or are you moving backward? Is my life more reflective of selfish ambition or kindness, sacrificial kindness toward the people around me? It's forward or backward. It's two options. Am I more inclined to respond to situations with jealousy, envy, or hostility, or peace? If you can tell a tree by its fruit and a person by their actions... What are people seeing about us? What kind of fruit are we growing? Where are you this morning? Where are you going? 
It's an important question. It's one we need to answer. And so are we getting closer to him? When we look at that list in Galatians 5 or the fruit of the Spirit, the things that, that characterize us, if you were to ask someone, hey, in this list, what do you see more of? And I'm not sitting here saying we all go and have wild parties every weekend, but there's some things in that list that don't have to happen externally, right? What's your default setting? It's important that we consider this question. Are we moving forward or backward? All right, the last set of opposites that I want to encourage you to analyze your heart with, right, in answering the question, where are you, is are you moving outward or inward? Are you moving outward or inward? And I want to start by looking at Matthew 22. So in Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40, I can speak. Um, Jesus is responding to the Sanhedrin. They've just asked him, what is the greatest commandment? And this is what he says. He says, uh, well, there's the question. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Full stop. First commandment. So there's an equally, there's another that is equally as important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two central commandments. And it's true. If you were to look back at the original Ten Commandments, if you were to expand the law to the other 120 uh, rules and practices that, uh, that the Jewish people were set to believe, they all align with this idea. You're loving God, and you're living in such a way that reflects that you love God, and you're loving people. And for us today, those are the two highest callings and the things that should characterize our lives more than anything else. Right? The whole law, the whole scripture can be summed up in simply saying, we are to love God and love people. Right? Love God and love people. Those are the two points that should dictate our lives. And so, my question for you is, are we really loving people? Does our life really show that we love God? We've started studying Romans 12 in our young adult small group. Young-ish adult small group is now what I'm calling it. Uh, I realize I'm not as young as I once was. And on my own, I've been studying Romans chapter 12 for a number of months. It's a relatively short passage of Scripture, but I've been digging into it, and I've been going really, 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 really slow. And I've been trying to apply it to my life, often not very well, but I've been trying my best to look at what it looks like in Romans 12, because this is what it is. In Romans 1 through 11, Paul lays out very clear theological truths, okay? Things like, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All are destined for hell. That's one of the theological truths he lays out. Uh, Jesus has paid the price for our ransom once and for all. It says we are saved by grace and not by works. It says that once we're saved, nothing can separate us from the love of God our Father. So he lays out these theological truths, and then he gets to Romans 12, and you flip the page, and you're like feeling this high, and he says, so then we must live our lives as living sacrifices. If we believe what I've just told you, which I think we could all say, yep, those things are true. That's what we believe. It's like the Nicene Creed. That's why we're in this building today, singing the songs that we sing and communing as a body of believers, because we believe those things to be true. He says, then your life must reflect it. And he says, man, he does not pull any punches. He says, this is our reasonable service. In some verses, he puts it this way, or in some versions, he says, is that too much to ask? Mm. Paul just doesn't pull any punches, man. He'll get you right, right to the heart of it. So if we believe those things to be true, there is a response that is required of us as believers. 
Our lives have to go in a certain direction, and for us, that is outward, not inward. It is loving others instead of selfish ambition, and I want to show you in the Word. If you don't believe me, let's go to Romans 12 together, and I want to show you some things. He opens it up, and he says that first little passage, verses 1 through 3, and then he jumps into it. Ready? Just as our bodies have many parts, and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body, and we belong to each other. Now, I've heard that passage before, I've read that passage before, and I will tell you, honestly, I have glossed over that last phrase every single time. But we belong to each other. It is for the communal edification and growth of the kingdom that your gifts were given to you. It is for us. It is for God. It is for people. It is not for you. Everything that we should do should not be self-centered, individualistic, and divisive. But if you look at the church today, those three words could describe the church just as much as the world outside it. Right? How dare I not be happy? I, once, I think it was Francis Chan that once said, we have a serve us mentality instead of a service mentality. We've grown fat and lazy. And it's time that we realize that everything we do is meant to benefit and unify the body. Everything we do. It is outward, not inward. Then in verses 6 through 8, we're not going to put them on the screen, but he lists a series of gifts. Okay, it's one of many gifts passages in here. And he lists the series of gifts. And every single one of them is something that benefits someone else. Here's some gifts that he lists. Prophecy. What is the definition of prophecy in the Bible? It's a message that is meant to strengthen, encourage, and comfort others. It is for others. Here are the others he lists, serving, teaching, encouraging, giving, leading, and showing kindness. And each of those gifts that he lists that he says we in the body have are for the service of, you guessed it, other people. Right? Everything that we do, I don't know how else to say it. Everything that we do is for God and for others. That is our pursuit. So now I want to take you back into the word, picking up in verse 9. I broke down 6 through 8. Let's go back in verse 9. Don't just pretend to love others. Man, we, we could stop there. Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what's wrong. Hold tightly to what's good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Take delight in honoring each other. Take delight in doing right by one another. Not in keeping up with the Joneses. Not in getting even. Not in picking out all the little details that are wrong with someone, but take delight in honoring each other. He goes on, he says, uh, helping people. He talks about helping people. Be eager to help people. Be eager to practice hospitality. He says, bless instead of curse those who wrong you. He says, live in harmony. Do your best to live in harmony with everyone around you. He says in another passage, as much as it depends on you, live in peace with those around you. As much as it depends on you. And he says, don't think that you know it all. Each of those things is about how we respond to other people. Corey, you can go ahead and come. Everything that we do, our lives, when we look at this last set of opposites, outward versus inward, It's about two things. It's about humility, and it's about unity. 
It's humility and it's unity. It's not boasting in self. It's not puffing up. When you look at 1 Corinthians and you look at the definition of love, what does it say? Love does not boast. Love does not puff up. Love does not seek its own. If we're truly loving others like we're commanded to do, it must be an outward pursuit. It's reflected in an earnestness that says, God, every day, here's my life. Here are my gifts. Use me as you see fit. That's humility. Pride is waking up, rolling out of bed and saying, I know what's on my to-do list today. See you later. I'll fit you in at the end when I'm laying down and I can pray. That's pride. The opposite of unity is division. That's saying, I know right. My way or the highway. Everything is meant to strengthen the body because why? We belong to each other. We got to stop the infighting. We got to stop the selfish ambition. We got to get to a place where we realize, just think, how could your relationship with your significant other or your spouse be different if you filtered every conversation through this lens? That the thing you want to say, you hold back from saying. I mean, it can be summed up, right? Treat others how you want to be treated. It's the golden rule. It's the words of Jesus. It's in the Bible. Just think, how is this going to impact the people around me? Does this strengthen them? Does this benefit them? Does it edify them? If so, awesome, do it. Let us do nothing out of selfish ambition. Would you guys stand with me? I know I've taken us all over the place this morning, but it's important that we analyze the question of where are we? And that if we find that we're not where we should be, that we course correct. And for me, sometimes it happens internally. Sometimes God has to use external things to wake us up and to help us realize, hey, you're not where you need to be. And mine was an interaction with a college, or not a college friend, a high school um, classmate. And I was at Robinson Salvage and I was shopping and I was doing my own thing. And I ran across this guy that I haven't seen since 2007 when I graduated high school. Yes, 15 years. That was hard for me to take as well. Uh, And I saw him there. And I'm trying to practice what I'm preaching today. I'm trying to put it into practice and do what I'm doing. And so I go up to him. And I'm like, I'm going to ask him about his life. And I'm, look, I'm just going to be honest. This guy wasn't really nice to me in high school. He picked on me. He said some things that, you know, you don't think of. But the second you see someone, you like remember all the things they said about you. Like I haven't been sitting there like stewing over him for years. He doesn't have like journal pages dedicated to him or anything. But in a moment, I remembered everything that he had ever said to me and done to me. And it took everything in me not to like dip my head and be like, nope. And I went up to him and I said, hey man, how's it going? What have you been up to? You know, it's been 15 years. How's your life been? And his response took me back. Because when I asked that question, I said, what have you been up to? What have you been doing? His response was this, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And he begins to tell me of how he moved to the roughest neighborhood in this little Texas community where he lives. And he started a home church. And he told me about how the gangs used to go to the basketball court. And that's where they'd settle their disputes. That's where they'd kill each other. That was the meeting ground, the proving ground. He said, you know what? That basketball court is now the site of our outdoor worship services. 
He said, man, I've seen lives changed. I've seen diseases healed. I've seen demons cast out. He's like, incredible things are happening. And in an instant, I thought, what have I been doing? I've been going in so many other directions, caring about so many other things that do not matter. Getting frustrated about work. Come on. And it was the swift kick in the pants that I needed because what we need to realize is that we're going in a direction. Our lives are taking us somewhere. We have a trajectory. There's a place that we're going. And I hope that today we can take this word and we can analyze our place, our destination, where we are. Because it's my sincere prayer that the next time someone comes up to me or that someone comes up to you and they say, what have you been up to? How's life been? That we don't sit here and talk about burnout. That we don't say, man, I've been so busy. That we don't sit there and say, man, I just, I can't get caught up at work. Or that, gosh, these things just, the bills keep piling up. Or I'm so frustrated with my spouse. Because that's what we want to say. Those are the things that show where our lives are going. But my hope and my prayer, earnestly, church, is it like this high school classmate, the next time we're asked what we've been up to, we can say, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That is the only thing that matters. And so I want to pray. And Corey and, and the team will play. And these altars are open. And they're open for anything, whatever kind of week you've had, whatever weighs heavy on your heart. I pray that you'll come and counter God. That's why we have these altars. That's why this opportunity exists. But if you've been listening to this message today and you say, okay, I'm not where I want to be, then my answers to these questions, I've realized that I'm moving wayward instead of toward. I'm moving backward instead of forward. I've been living inwardly instead of outwardly. I hope that you'll come and course correct this morning. I hope that you won't keep going down that road because that was me. And I can sit here and say, yeah, it was about work and yeah, it was a bad place, but I was really, really, really angry. I was thinking thoughts that I haven't thought in years. And God showed up in a way that I needed him to so that I could figure out where am I? And that's the question for us today. So I'm gonna pray and I encourage you to come, but let's not leave here if we realize that we're going in a wrong direction, amen? Father God, we thank you. We thank you that you're loving. We thank you that you're patient. We thank you that you're with us. God, your word says you never leave us or forsake us. And even when we're walking in the opposite direction, God, you're calling out for us. I pray this morning that you remind us of the fact that if we realize that we're farther from you than we once were, that you're not the one who moved. And I pray that with an earnestness and a conviction and a desire to live for you, God, that we'd course correct where we need to. That you give us the courage. I know change isn't easy, God, but I pray that you give your people the courage to make changes where change is needed. That you allow us to say within ourselves and in our relationship with you that we're not where we want to be. And as we hear your voice that calls out to us in the cool of the day and says, where are you? We'd answer truthfully, honestly, 
And if there's conviction in the question that says, oh, I'm not beside you, God. I'm not right with you, God. I've been putting you on the back burner, God. Draw us near. God, I'm comforted by this morning by, by your word. God, the fact that anyone who thought they were too far from you was never as far as they thought. And even the prodigal son who had gone and he had squandered his life and his resources, that when he returned, there was a party, there was a celebration. God, I pray that that alone convicts us to know that we can run back into your arms, the arms of a loving father who forgives, who mends, who strengthens, who encourages. God, draw us near today. We thank you and we praise you. We pray that you have been blessed and inspired by today's Covenant Living broadcast. To find out more information about our ministry, just visit our website at www.covenantlifewestga.org. You can find this video there on our homepage. Just click the YouTube button and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel. And give us a call at 770-537-3747. That's 770-537-3747. At Covenant Life, our mission is to go and make disciples by being real, relational, and reaching. Be sure to join us next week for more Covenant Living with Pastor John Butler.